Hello there. My name is Squee. Well, okay, actually, my name's Steven, but no one calls me that. Just just call me Squee. And I'd like to invite you to our very first episode of our Pathfinder Curse of the Crimson Throne Adventure Path campaign. Now, if you're listening to this or watching it, um, then there's a very good chance that you know what Pathfinder is and maybe even what an adventure path is. But just in case you don't, Pathfinder is a pen and paper game like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, which is the most popular one. It's very close and very similar. Um, and adventure paths are epic campaigns that are written for it. They're not just a small uh, scenario or short adventure. These are pre-written campaigns that are to take a character all the way from level one till I think this one's 16 or 17, level 17, which is huge. So this campaign takes years of real time to complete. That's how uh, in-depth and epic the story is. And uh, we are going to hopefully play that out for you. Uh, I'm going to be the GM, and I'm going to be joined by four other players, uh, who you don't know yet, but hopefully you will get to know as this goes along. Of course, there's Elora and Blue and Spiral, all very good friends of mine, and of course, my very own older sister. I call her Sib for sibling, but you can just call her Cairo. Um, we're all going to sit down and we are going to play this adventure path together. Now, it should be pointed out that none of us have actually played Pathfinder before. We, uh, my sister and I actually cut our teeth on a system called Monsters and Slayers, which, if you've never heard of before, I'm not surprised. Our father wrote it and published it back in the 80s, and he's the one that introduced us to pen and paper games. Um, and everyone else has played different systems, so none of us are new to this, except my sister hasn't actually played in like 20 years. But uh, we are all new to Pathfinder, so please do be patient with us uh, as we kind of get the system ingrained in us. Pathfinder is a wonderful system, but it is very rules-heavy. There's a lot to keep track of, and it takes a little while to build up steam and really get going. Uh, this isn't my first outing as a GM, um, but this is my first time GMing an adventure path or pretty much anything pre-canned or, or written for me. Um, I My other GMing experiences was Ardenfell, a homebrewed campaign for 13th Age where everything I made up, the, the world, the people, the races, the stories, the problem, quote unquote. Um, and I've done Three Galaxies, uh, which is a settings for the Rifts Palladium uh, pen and paper game, which I adore. Uh, and I'm still doing that one, in fact, on our um, PsyLP channel on YouTube. You can find all of that there. Uh, we have our small YouTube channel, and we do mostly pen and paper games, um, and you can find all kinds of uh, games there. But I am trying something new for this campaign as well. Not only will we be uploading it on YouTube, but we are doing it as a podcast. So hello, welcome. If you're coming to the podcast end of it, um, I've never tried this before, so this will be a new experience. So please bear with us if we forget to uh, say our dice rolls from time to time. We will try to remember the best we can. But yeah, so you can listen to this either as a podcast uh, where and take it with you wherever you go. Or if you'd like to see what we're seeing, you can go to our YouTube channel, which is www.youtube.com slash P-S-Y-L-P, P, and you can watch it there. There are a couple of things. I don't want to talk too long, but a couple of things I do need to let you know so that you can decide if this is a, a podcast or a series that you would like to watch. First and foremost, none of my players are what you would call 
power gamers. Not that that's not a valid way to play. I think that there is no valid way to play a game per se. Um, but we're much closer to, we've been accused of being tabletop thespians more than, uh, roleplay gamers, which means we care much more about the story and the characters in the story than we care about just how powerful our punch is. So while we will do our best to play the game well, you kind of have to. It's a Pathfinder adventure path. Uh, those things can be unforgiving. Um, if you're looking at our party going, oh, that's not the best party, and, and when you leveled up, you shouldn't have multiclassed, that's not what we're really going for. We're here to have fun, and my players are going to do what they think is fun, and I as a GM will adapt. And speaking of adapting, if you've ever heard or done a Curse of the Crimson Throne campaign, uh, things will be a little different this time around. Uh, not a huge difference, but I have made small and major changes to uh, fit the campaign more to my players, who I know well. So I've changed a few things to make uh, the story more impactful, in my opinion, and uh, there might be a few surprises along the way. So if you're familiar with it, this will still be a fun uh, listen or watch. I do beg your patience with us as we get used to this kind of format, especially when it comes to podcasting. Our quality may not be the best. Um, it's certainly not going to be up there with uh, the Glass Cannon podcast or One Shot. Both excellent, excellent podcasts. If you have not already listened to them, what, what, what are you, what are you doing? Just go. Um, but we will do our best and, um, we're always open to advice and things of that nature. In my opinion, my players must come first because if they're not having fun, you won't have fun. But you guys are a very close second and we're always interested in, in hearing what you have to say. And speaking of you guys, I've noticed that a lot of campaigns and podcasts um, kind of throw the viewer in there and they kind of have to tread the water um, or drown because there's very little time to explain who the characters are, what the campaign setting is, what's even going on, and you just kind of have to pick it up as you go along. Because in a pen and paper game, it's kind of hard to imagine that there are viewers there. So I want to try something different that I've never seen in a podcast before or a, a YouTube Let's Play. This entire episode is going to help you understand what's going on. First, I'm going to have about a 12-minute uh, introduction to the campaign setting, the city of Corvosa, as told by one of its more interesting citizens. Then I'm going to sit down with each player uh, by themselves for between 15 to 30 minutes each um, and have a solo mini-session with them where we will talk about who their character is, uh, what their backgrounds are, their beliefs, what's happened to them, and then we'll slip into to a role play where they will experience a moment in their life that changes them forever, that starts getting the ball rolling to begin this campaign. Now, the idea of this hopefully is that when we start the actual campaign in the next episode, you already have an investment in the characters. You know who they are, you know why they're there, and you're rooting for them, hopefully. And you have a little bit of understanding of where they are, so you're not trying to figure all that stuff out while paying attention to the story. We'll see if it works. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But in any case, you can... Please feel free to let us know. We would love to hear from you, whether it's from the podcast or the YouTube side. Uh, we don't mind. We love you equally. There is no favorite stepchild here. Um, we just really, really hope that uh, you enjoy our adventure because so far we are having a blast. So sit back, relax, and welcome to the Curse of the Crimson Throne.
Yes, well, all right. Put the clockwork bug on the counter right there. Mm. Hmm. Very good. Now, uh, is the thing already turned on? Well, why in the blazes would you do that? Never mind, never mind. Once it's been activated, it cannot be stopped. Be a chum and go identify those wands I purchased off that fellow earlier. There's a good lad. Pay no heed to my assistant, Sammy. Poor orc has the mind of a child, but is an absolute prodigy when it comes to activating magical artifacts. And is a mute, no less. I I believe it's a peculiar mix of... uh, Well, that's neither here nor there. I, dear listener, am Timrodian Fregunius Xenathar III. Or, as some have deigned to call me, Timrodian the Magnificent. And you are listening to the first of what I hope to be a very profitable line of auditory guides to the great city of Corvosa. Now, where to start? Where to start? Well, as I'm sure you know, the land of Verissia is a harsh, barbaric land, where one can find nomadic heathen tribes, goblin clans, monsters, well, a general lack of sophistication. That is, of course, for the very notable exception of the grand city of Corvosa. This absolute jewel of a city stands like a shining beacon of civilization in an otherwise unremarkable land. Well, I suppose that's unkind. Uh, The semi-nomadic tribes of the Shawanti have some fascinating customs and, in my personal opinion, are rather upstanding people once you get to know them. But their ways are undeniably barbaric, and they simply refuse to allow themselves to be taught proper culture. It is no exaggeration to say that the people of Corvosa and the Shawanti tribes don't get along very well. Now, yes, the Chalaxian founders of Corvosa did basically steal the land from the Shawanti, and yes, there have been several wars fought between them because of it. But what's done is done. No use wailing over a torn scroll, I always say. Corvosa is here and here for good. And I dare say that if the Shonatai tried to leave behind their archaic practices and actually embrace the civilization that Corvosa offers, they wouldn't be subjected to the admittedly cruel and unjustified bigotry they face today. Ah... But you, dear listener, did not pay your good money to hear me prattle on about the Shawanti. No, dear listener, you paid the very reasonable sum of a thousand gold pieces to hear about the city of Kuavosa. And what a city it is! More than 18,000 people call Kuavosa their home. At point of fact, it used to actually be quite a bit more, but a bunch of malcontents made a mass exodus some decades ago over about a petty politics, and founded the city of Magnamar. Good riddance, I say. More room for the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> unless, of course, you happen to have purchased this device in Magnamar, in which case I fully embrace your right to take a moral stand over trivial matters and, and hope that our two towns can still be brothers in commerce and the exchange of knowledge. <clears throat> now, where was I? Ah, yes. Quavosa is a rich and diverse city where dwarves, elves, humans, and all sorts of other races rub shoulders. I've even seen a few dozen Kadals. What? Mm. Devil? Mm. No, no, Sammy! Sammy! Mm. 
Don't test the wands in here, you oaf. Mm. Is that a squid? Mm. Well, unsummon it right this instant, you Mm. blasted orc. (sighs) Good. Now go outside with that nonsense. Mm. (sighs) Sorry about that, dear listener. As I was saying... 18,000 people in one place can get quite complicated, if you understand my meaning. It takes strong leadership to keep things in tip-top shape. That is why Corvosa has a monarch. And the arbiters. And the magistrates. To be honest, never paid much attention to politics. Too busy, don't you know? Uh, But they seem to be doing an upstanding job, however they do it. Besides, I know what you really want to ask. Timurin, what about the curse of the Crimson Throne? (sighs) Whenever one speaks of the monarch of Corvosa, they cannot do but to simply bring up the fabled uh, curse. You can't see, but I'm making little quotation signs with my fingers so that you know the foolishness that this actually entails. You see, our monarch, who happens to be King Eodred Alabasti II at the moment, resides in a massive citadel on top of the ruins of an ancient pyramid. A pyramid, I might add, that I have requested access to on no less than 26 occasions to properly study and have been most egregiously refused 27 times. The last time I tried, they turned me away before I even had a chance to utter a word. <laughs> what buffoonish ignorance. Well, anyway, where was I? Ah, yes. Within this citadel, our king happens to sit on an exquisite throne that is crimson in color. Hence the name of the curse, you see. Well, the local populace tends to hold to the superstitious idea that the throne is cursed. They say that no man or woman who sits on it as a ruler will die a natural death or conceive an heir to pass the throne to when they die. Pure poppycock, I say. Well, of course, it just so happens that in the city's long history, no monarch has died of natural causes or conceived a child after they became the ruler of Corvosa. But what of it? Has no one ever heard of coincidence? Yeah, I happened to perch blue linen from my bed three years ago. And, as it so happens, I have started having to get up to pee twice a night. Damn inconvenient, but it doesn't mean I'm going to start running down the streets bemoaning the curse of the sapphire bedsheets. Though, uh, on a smaller side, we here at Timurin's Bazaar do have a very nice selection of self-cleaning enchanted bedsheets uh, for a very reasonable price. Uh, just a little nugget of knowledge that you can tuck away for later. Uh, now, where was I? On uh, the monarchy. I, uh, but... Everyone who is anyone, and you, dear listener, are surely someone, knows that a government is only as effective as its army. And, lucky for us, Corvosa just happens to have three. First, you have Sable Company, swooping around on their hippogriffs and obeying the orders of the city's seneschal. They are very much the mounted knights, all shivery and honor and what not, respectable if a bit old-fashioned. Then you have the Hell Knights, running around trying to uphold some misguided sense of inflexible justice. If you ask me, they're little more than hired thugs, quite so, considering they only protect the streets of Corvosa because the city pays them an exorbitant sum of gold. And finally, you have the Crimson Guard. These soldiers form the backbone of Corvosa and are the most likely guards to see walking down the street, keeping things nice and orderly. 
Interestingly, they do not actually answer to any one government. Instead, they are charged with protecting the people of the city above all else. Oh, to be sure, if the monarch or the arbiters ask them to do something, they will almost always oblige. Uh, they need funding, after all. Uh, but there have been several times in Quavosa's history where the Crimson Guard has refused the orders of the monarch in order to do what they felt was best for the people. And it is the people who truly make Quavosa great. We are a most industrious lot, and tend to respect large displays of ostentatious wealth and, and power. Uh, this has led some to believe that Kravosians are fickle and obsessed with money. But it is not the money itself that is the root of this mindset. Instead, it is the implied hard work it took to achieve such wealth. We tend to respect hard work and wealth, while shunning laziness and poverty. Uh, Kervosians also tend to love predictability. Uh, from the poor souls stuck in the ghettos of old Corvosa to the nobles in the heights, the citizens of this town like to lead regimented and predictable lives. Why, one of the surest ways of upsetting a Corvosan is to mess with her daily routine. This mindset is pervasive through our entire culture. Uh, one example, perhaps, is our rather strict views on crime and punishment. Uh, some have criticized Corvosa's laws against criminals for being harsh and unfair. However, as I said, the people of Corvosa are beings of predictability and routine. Nothing disrupts that more than crime, and thus it receives treatment proportional to the mayhem it incites. Now, that, that is not to say that there is no crime here at all. In fact, we happen to have a semi-legal thieves' guild in the city. <laughs> I know, I know you might think that's absurd at first glance, and it is. But Quervosa long ago decided that stopping crime altogether was an impossible task. Uh, however, if one regulates it so that only petty theft and small crimes are permitted, they can possibly prevent it from becoming too disrupting. So, in their questionable judgment, the city allows no guilds of any kind, except the allowance of a small thieves' guild that is designed to make everyone's life miserable, as long as it pays the city a portion of its ill-gotten fortune in tax. To be honest, it all sounds like a bunch of foolishness to me, but I don't deign to dabble in politics. So let them do what they will. Just keep your corn purse secure and try not to sign anything you don't understand and you'll be fine. In any case, I... Oh, oh my, sir, 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 please, please don't open that. It contains... Oh, well, I did try to warn him after all. Oh, calm down, sir. I will free you in a moment. Until then, you can float there and think about the wisdom of touching things that clearly have signs saying not to. Oh, especially while in a shop of magical wonders. <sighs> well, there you have it, dear listener. A brief look at the jewel of Varicia Corvosa. Oh, I could go on and on about the many sights to see here, and the famous delicacies that can be found, and our several prestigious places of learning. <sighs> but honestly, some of the city must be left up to you to explore. And... If you happen to find yourself in our grand city, uh, make sure to find your way to Timuronian's majestic bazaar. 
Located in what was formerly the Jaeger Museum, my bazaar has everything treasure hunters, collectors, or traveling adventurers mm-hmm. could ever need. Mm-hmm. D- Sammy, mm-hmm. Sammy, no, no, please, don't, don't try to pull him down. Mm-hmm. Sammy! Alright, so, first up, we're going to uh, introduce uh, Spiral. What's your character's name? Otto Molari. Otto Molari. And what is Otto Molari? Otto Molari is an oracle who has been cursed slash blessed by the god Goran. And the no one, no one remembers- god of war, if I believe. I'm not sure. War, battle, yes. Sure, that's fine. Yeah. And uh, he he's not entirely pleased with this god because of the whole cursed part of it. But yes, that's... Right. So he's basically like a, um, like a pseudo-cleric that uses charisma instead of wisdom. And uh, unlike clerics, his powers are bestowed upon him whether he likes it or not. That's right, and he has no choice over, uh, unlike a cleric who has to prepare spells for a day, his spells are pretty much just thrust into him. So mm-hmm. it, this is really sort of out of his, a lot of his, a lot of his uh, abilities are out of his control. Right. So like a cleric is to a wizard what a oracle is to a sorcerer. Correct. Um, and uh, it's a very, very interesting, fun class. I think it's going to be amazing. And you are cursed by something very particular. That's right. Uh, when I was initially cursed, everyone who knew me immediately forgot. And at this point, it seems that for the most part, everyone who meets me also forgets who I am. So I've sort of become a nobody. Previously... I was a blacksmith. I had a respectable trade. Uh, I I forged uh, spikes into my armor. A single spike, not to be too gaudy, but a single spike into my armor out of respect to Gorum, the god of battle, who uh, I considered a sort of uh, a patron, you know? Like, without battle, nobody needs armor. So I'm forging stuff. I might as well pay some uh, respect to Gorum. Forged a spike into the armor. He, He brings you business. That's right. And, uh, but then, then he, he cursed me when I sort of refused his, his offer of patronage because he, he demanded I lose my family ties and I was not too terribly interested in that idea. So your family ties, tell me about that. You, uh, you have a a family. Right. So, uh, growing up, I, I became a smith and married a lovely woman. And uh, had a beautiful daughter. And uh, when Gorham initially approached me, he told me that I had to forget about these people. And I, I, I kind of told him to uh, go to hell, which, which didn't huh. end up so well for me. Uh, daughter's name is Lida. And... The wife's name is... Oh, this is terrible. Go on. 
I'm sorry, one more time? I just said go on. I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I've Oh, been. oh, oh. Um, how old is your daughter? Six. Six years old. All right. And when you were cursed with this uh, forgetfulness, or, or this curse of, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but the, everyone forgetting you, even your wife and child completely forgot about you? That's correct. The wife's name is Anna. Anna and Lydda, my wife and daughter, completely forgot who I was. Um, I could not bear... I mean, it's just awful. It's just awful coming home mm-hmm. and having people be like, uh, I'm sorry, who are you? So, even my employer forgot who I was. I've been living on the street. I've been trying to accumulate any sort of income and provide it to my family. Um, Has your character I, ever tried to uh, make contact with your family again, like convince them to remember you? I mean, were there any awkward moments like that? or Absolutely. I've, I've tried to come home and, and say, don't you remember me? I'm, I'm Otto, you know, like, oh, we, we met at that tavern, you know, we were having a good time and we danced. Don't you remember us getting married? And, and there's just nothing. It's it's like I've been completely erased from time. Whew. Heartbreaking. Um, even even my daughter looks at me and she she says I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. And uh, and uh, to Otto, I mean, his family was his life, right? It was devotion and work uh, and love. family. That's really all yeah. I had going for me, and I'm I've been still trying to keep an eye on them. And make sure everything's okay. I've lost my occupation, but I, I've tried to uh, keep any sort of income I can to to keep them, you, you know, keep them fed and sheltered. Uh, I, but I've I've more or less been living on the streets ever since. Okay. Well, we're gonna slip into uh, uh, character here a little bit. We're going to kind of explore a very fateful day in uh, Otto's life. Uh, I'm going to set the scene a little bit. Um, so you told me that Otto's still keeping track of his family as best he can. Obviously, you know, he cares about them, but he can't get too close because, you know, he's just going to scare them at this point. Um, um, I suppose there is a benefit to the fact that they they forget every time you come. So it's not like they think you're harassing them. Um, but... Um, you you told me that uh, Otto would often say follow his daughter at a distance to keep an eye on her to make sure she's safe and uh, uh, basically if nothing else just to be as close as he can to her. Um, yeah, that's right. Any any time they they left the house, it's, I wasn't preoccupied. I'd I'd be watching and just try and keep an eye because just just watching my daughter even from a distance made me happy. So there is one day. Um, about a year before the start of the campaign, it's summertime, very hot. Um, and, uh, you were around your old home, just keeping an eye on things. And, uh, you saw, uh, Lita come outside, uh, very happy. Um, she just turned six, probably a few days before. Um, and, uh, her mother, Anna had, you could hear from where you are standing, where you're watching, tell her that, uh, to go to the market and to buy the things on her list and, uh, to the rest of the money she could buy a treat for herself, uh, but not to take too long and to come back soon. 
And um, even though Lyra's young, uh, this part of town is is not. I mean, you were a blacksmith. You were middle uh, middle class. It wasn't a very dangerous section of town. Um, and, uh, you know, it was fairly safe for the most part. Um, so your daughter started walking down the street, humming a song to herself, a song that she keeps uh, singing, which is odd because it's a song that you used to hum and sing to her when she was very young to help put her to sleep. And she seems to have forgotten everything about you, forgotten everything about where she learned the song, but she still sings the song. Um, And she hums it to herself as she's going down the road. And about 15 minutes away from your home, uh, she's at the market. She's looking through stalls. Uh, she's not doing what she's supposed to be doing, getting things on the list. She's kind of, uh, looking at sweets and, uh, pretty dresses and, uh, things like that. And, uh, you're, how far away would you say you're from her? 20, 30 feet. Okay. Just kind of milling about. Yeah. I just, I would just watch. I, interacting would be too, too painful. So I just watch and see that she's, She's enjoying shopping for pretty dresses. That's just fun. Well, you you notice, uh, you look away for a second. Something catches your eye or whatnot, and you turn back around. And you notice that walking beside your daughter is now uh, a man, an older man. Uh, thin of frame, not too tall, not too physically impressive. Wears a, a wide-brimmed hat with a white feather in it. Um, looks to be in his maybe 60s. And uh, you can hear from where you are, Hello, Poppet. Where's your mum? Oh, mum's back at home. Just getting lists for the groceries. Oh. Well, aren't you a sweet girl? Oh, well, I'm not really supposed to talk to strangers, sir. Oh, no, I'm no stranger, Poppet. I'm a friend of your mother's. And she was telling me that there was a surprise for you. A gift. A gift? Oh, yes, Poppet, a gift. Right this way. And he kind of, like, puts a hand on her back and starts guiding her down the road. What do you do? I'd begin to follow and be extremely concerned because I kind of want to punch this guy in the face. Mm. This guy gives you a very bad vibe, very creepy, beady eyes. Um, and, uh, your daughter seems hesitant, but, uh, whether the, the promise of a surprise or maybe just fear, uh, she follows along and, uh, guided by his hand. And I would, and, I would um, desperately mm-hmm. want to reach out and tell her, that, you know, not to trust this person, but I would know I'm, I'm just another stranger. It's his word against mine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you see them take a turn down an alley where there's not many people. And, uh, you, you know, I would assume you'd kind of, once they get out of view, you kind of hurry up to get back into view of them. Yeah. When you get back into view, the man has his hand clamped over your daughter's mouth and she's trying to scream muffled. He's like, shh, Poppet, that's not very ladylike. And he's dragging her down the alleyway. And uh, I'd be just absolutely furious and in a rage to try and get towards her and 
stop this person. Uh, you start rushing towards him, and uh, he looks up and sees you coming, and his eyes widen for a second, and then as you're almost to him, you see him nod his head, and the next thing you know, uh, you feel a blinding pain in the back of your head. And uh, as you fall to the ground trying to catch your senses, there is uh, two very large men stand in front of you, one of them with a blackjack in his hand, um, which is like a, a device, like a sap, a device used to knock people in the head. And uh, the the man holding your daughter goes, well, 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 looks like we've got ourselves a, a genuine hero, just like that blackjack they talk about. Oh... Was this yours, then? He says, shaking the girl. Well, fear not, friend. I've just got a little task for her. And then he starts, uh, she's like, at this time, she's kicking and trying to scream, but it's just muffled voices coming from the hand. And then the, the man looks at the two men, gives a nod, and then starts dragging her away. Um, the fight is, uh, well, here's a question for your character. Did you, you did, we did a lot of blacksmithing. Did you do a lot of fighting? I mean, were you a soldier? Were you, did you have a combat background of any kind? No. No, not at all. Never fought in my life. That day, those two men, one of the hardest things you've ever done in your life. Rage, desperation probably drove you on. And by the time the fight was over, you killed your first two men. But it took too much time, and you took a lot of damage. And by the time you were free of them and standing over their bodies, that man and your daughter were nowhere to be seen. I would have to assume that you spent hours hunting for them, but no trace. The the only thing you know is the vision, the uh, appearance, description of the man. Over the next course of a couple of weeks, as you try and find your daughter, try and find out what happened, you start hearing rumors in the shady places you begin to visit of uh, a man called Gadrian Lamb. Has a, a, a racket taking orphans and uh, putting them to labor. And uh, the description matches what you saw. And from what you hear, this man's not a nice man. Tends to uh, dispose of orphans when they get too defiant or too old or too uh, injured. And uh, for the next year, you try and track this man down. You hear rumors of him, but you can never find anything definitive. You can't find where he is. And most importantly, you can't find your daughter. Um, your wife... Uh, is devastated. Obviously, her daughter just disappeared one day. Um, and, you know, you can't even comfort her because she doesn't know who you are. And uh, as we start the adventure, um, where would you be staying a year later? In an inn, a shack, a hovel? Uh, where Where are you? Where do you sleep at night? I would I would be living on the streets at night. One searching for her in the daytime, at night covering myself with anything I could to keep warm. 
One morning, you wake up uh, on the side of the road in a gutter. And uh, like most mornings, you get up and you start shaking off the weariness, preparing to search again. And you notice something tucked into your uh, coat pocket. It's a horror card. Now, horror cards are pretty common in Kavosa. They are, uh, think like a tarot card in real, in real life, but they are cards used by people skilled with them or trained in the magical arts to read fortunes. And, uh, on the back of this card is, uh, something that perks your interest very greatly. And, uh, we'll end there for now. You gonna end it there? Yep. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> okay so now we are here with uh our other another player i don't really know what order you're going to be in so i don't want to say like second player but uh it's actually my sister hi yes. welcome hi sister hi how are you uh you just playing a game so tell us a little bit about your character arlen uh, my character Arlen, she is an artificer. Mm-hmm. Which um, or, we should probably explain a little bit because uh, many people might not know what an artificer is. It is a third-party class, which means that uh, Paizo, the, the fine people who made Pathfinder, didn't necessarily make this class, but a, a, a third party made this class as an, an advanced class for Pathfinder. They are uh, a cross between a mad scientist and a, and a, and a magician. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, instead of casting spells, they create devices to do the same thing as magic. And at least the way that I would ideally like to play it is the fact of my character does not believe uh, magic, per se, but actually believes that there is a logical reason for everything, and everything that occurs within the world follows our basic understanding of Physics, chemistry, biology, all of our different types of science, we just don't quite know it yet. So, like, a good way to say it, I guess, if I understand correctly, is that to Arlen, your character, magic is just like gravity. And we're just waiting for a Newton to come by and explain it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Magic is, you know, we see the apple drop and instead of, like, you point at the apple and magically it drops, no, that's not it didn't happen because you pointed at it and said drop. It's there are other things going on. Okay, so it's not a denial. Like I mean, like Arlen fully admits that that person just cast a fireball and that was really cool. But there's an explanation for it, type of thing. Absolutely, okay. they tapped into some kind of physical energy that caused this manifestation. And if you just write it off as magic, that's lazy. So um, what our artificers do and what Arlen does is um, they approach magic from a very scientific standpoint. And uh, their class makes gizmos, inventions, weird little devices that that create the same effect as many spells. It's really cool. It's really neat. It should be fun. Um, another interesting thing to note about your character, if you'd explain this a little bit for us... Um, a bit of an atheist. Yes. Um, to an extent, I would, I, I think it's, I don't know if it's atheist or agnostic. I always forget the words and, uh, my wife who usually corrects me is not here. Right. Um, <laughs> but my, my character's approach is that 
it's not so much that we're based on some kind of pantheon or different gods, but really the world is governed by energy. You know, physical energy that we can see and measure in a lab. And there are two types of energy. There's positive energy that is going to do good things and help people who are truly good. And then there's bad energy. And bad energy is going to try and trick you and make you do the wrong thing. And makes a funny twist on my character is that my character sees religion as almost narcissistic. And um, even though you think in a religious standpoint you were doing, you know, praying to a god that is good, my character actually believes that only bad energy creates religion. Because only bad energy would need somebody to acknowledge them and pray to them and worship them. I see. So even deities who are typically seen as good deities, like, for example, maybe uh, the, the goddess Desna, um, mm-hmm. you think that either... It's a trick. You know, um, to use a horrible example, if you want to lure a small child into a van, you're going to give them a puppy. Got it. You know? Got it. So, so many players out there that are like playing clerics that are just like, oh, no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me. That's my character. I know. No, right, right. Well, that's an important thing to, to note for anyone who's who's not used to role playing is that um, there's a huge disconnect between players and characters. Um, so, but yeah, so this is an interesting thing. So tell us a little bit about Arlen. Uh, what's her race? What's, where's, what's her background? Does she have family? What, what's going on here? So, Arland is um, a half-elf. Um, her mother was full-elf. Her father was uh, actually of the noble class from Corvosa. And um, he went out one night and had some wild times. Um, and I came about. And uh, at least the story that I'm or that Arlen is told, is that um, her mother died when she was very young. And somehow I came to my father. You know, I was abandoned on the doorstep. And my father was really ashamed of me and didn't want the rest of his peers to know that he had a half-elf child. And so he looked down on me, I think, uh, treated me not the best and actually I was raised a lot by my brother uh, William so it was really my brother that kind of looked out for me and took care of me because my father was kind of a real douche got it so not even like just uh, maybe you were adopted or maybe we're not they, they, he, he hid your presence from from the, the nobility of Corvosa Absolutely. Okay. Uh, what about your brother? What was your relationship like with him? Uh, my brother was like my savior. He was my entire world. He um, he was the guy that taught me how to read and and was there whenever my you know father was trying to hide me. He he would always kind of make a game of it when I was really young and you know we're playing hide and seek and stuff like that. He's he was the guy that made my life good and tolerable and amazing. And he was a full-blown full, full blown human, right? 
yeah, he was a full-blooded human. Apparently, I guess his mother died as well. Um, she's never talked about. And, and so maybe we bond over both being uh, raised by just our father. Right. So th- this is a and this is a thing that 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 seems to be a pattern. Uh, the mother disappears, it's not really talked about. Um so but um so it's an interesting thing there. Uh is your your dad still around? He is, but I don't really talk to him. Uh what is um Arlen's last name or her brother's last name? Um that's a good question. Did did does Osler. Arlen have So is Osler like um, the last name of the family, so the the noble house of Osler. Yes, yes okay. it is the noble house of Osler. So, um, and just to give uh, everyone a bit of background or a little bit more of insight, Osler is a um, it's not one of the high nobles, um, more middle of the road. They they live in the Heights, definitely, which is the more richer side of town. Uh, they are a noble, uh, but they aren't one of the great houses. Um, but the name Osler would be known among the upper echelons of Corvosa society. Um, though the name of Arlen Osler, Osler not so much. <laughs> Definitely not. Um, so what was your brother like? What was he into? And um, what, what, what did you get into as well? Um, my brother was really, really smart. He was a brilliant medical researcher. And he he studied at first at the academy, and then um, I I don't really know why, but for some reason he was kicked out of the academy, and he never really talked about it. So I assume maybe he just didn't quite get in, or he didn't he wasn't productive enough, or something because of me. He spent a lot of his time taking care of me, and. Maybe he would have been better and more productive if he didn't have that added responsibility. Makes sense. Uh, understandable that your character would think that, given that her, her your brother was very tight-lipped about why he left. Um, or why he was forced to leave, or whatever happened. You, you don't know. Um, so after he left the academy, he had to find work somewhere, right? Yes. He, he started working at um, the, the university. Mm-hmm. The university, which uh, is a uh, a non magical college of sorts, which is where people went to study um, non magical pursuits, uh, literature, uh, the sciences, the the arts of healing, etc. But it's a non magical school, and it has nowhere near the same prestige or funds that the academy does. So your brother began working on uh, basically what he hoped would one day be. Uh, a cure for diseases, much like the spell cure disease, but in a non-magical sense, something that was a cure that could be given to the common person. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, he, he, as he researched it, he's, his base was actually taken from you, his dear little sister, who he was very, very fond of. Um, partly because of your half-elf heritage, he used your, um, essence or out of character we'd say your dna um in character i don't know if they actually know what that was but you were kind of the the base for this miracle cure that he hoped to one day create um and he started spending massive amounts of time and effort uh towards this goal um and you were there to help as much as possible right mm-hmm. yeah i mean i pretty much kind of lived in my brother's lap i because i didn't feel comfortable at home and he had a 
had a nice space in the back with a sleeping bag and some rations and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I helped him as much as I could. And you would uh, keep track of his notes for him, which were almost illegible to anyone else. Um, uh, yes, so. my brother didn't necessarily have the best of handwriting nor I, organizational skills. I'd also think it's more that he, um, the way he wrote was very strange and known only really to him and to you who would read his notes a lot like the, you could read what he wrote and still not understand what he's saying absolutely um, i mean if you've ever read anything science or medicine or even just you know textbooks it's not written for the normal person right absolutely um but this research project started um he started realizing that he was going to need more funds than he had the university um kind of he was kind of um he was respected there but he was also kind of forgotten about um because he spent all his time in the lab um and he didn't have the funds he needed uh one day uh he would have told you that he made a new business partner in an effort to produce the cure the cure became everything to him it was his life's work and uh he made a business partner uh named Rolf Lamb. Um and Rolf Lamb was you you know this, he was from the Academy, he was a, a highly respected student, um that had graduated with honors and uh, not too long before. And um I'll, I'll I'll say that your impression of him well, I'm not gonna tell you what your character's impression was of him, but he he looks kinda greasy, kinda creepy, generally not a, an all around nice guy. But your brother I mm-hmm. my I did not trust him. He was kind of a little weird, a little creepy, gave me weird vibes. I did not trust him or anything that he did. Mm-hmm. But your brother was kind of of the opinion it was necessary to to do the work. Um and they worked together for about six months. Um, and, uh, you discovered something rather interesting, didn't you? Taking care of your brother's notes. Yeah, I learned, uh, somehow the data that my brother was producing just wasn't adding up to the results. And, uh, it seemed like maybe Rolf was kind of manipulating things using his magic voodoo. (laughs) Yes, his magic voodoo. He was, uh, manipulating results to get different types of results and also you notice that in your brother's notes uh rolf was starting to scroll things in the margins and <clears throat> you discovered um some uh you kind of piece the idea the evidence together and you realize that rolf was trying to use magic to turn this cure for diseases into a form of immortality and uh, when you discovered that this is what Lamb was trying to, uh, that Rolf Lamb was trying to do, that he was trying to, like, in an essence, uh, warp your brother's goals to create an immortality elixir, um, what did you do? Um, I took the data and confronted my brother and told him, like, this guy that I never trusted, he's manipulating you. And you need to watch your back. You need to confront him and talk to him. It's not right. So, um, when you told him, when you confronted your brother and pointed out the evidence, your brother may have been a little scatterbrained, but he always listened to you. And when you made it, pointed it out, he, he put the pieces together himself. He was very upset, incredibly upset that someone would be, um, trying to alter his work like that. He, he was not only just upset, he also felt, um, very protective of me and he was a little concerned and he told me like I could not be at the lab. I couldn't be there. Uh, he kind of like cut me off and pushed me away, you know, mm-hmm. from everything that was going on. Right. For so, a few weeks, he, he tried to keep you from 
coming to the lab at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to kind of slip into character a little bit here. Uh, we're going to say this is one night, a few weeks after you confronted your brother with this information. Um, you're coming to the lab. Why are you coming to the lab? Uh, because I care about my brother and I know that he's one of those typical scientists who just like would forget about the basic things like eating, you know, mm-hmm. if somebody wasn't there. So I actually tried to sneak in to bring my brother some food, some dinner. Okay. Um, you sneak in and as you get close to the lab, which is towards the top floor of uh, what they call, um, excuse me, Black Hall, um, you start to hear raised voices. Your brother and a voice that you, you've you not heard before. It sounds older. Um, and you hear your brother say, your son was manipulating my results. And then you hear, it doesn't matter what my son was doing. What matters is I was funding your research. You owe me. If I change things, then you deal with it. Uh, and as you uh, come up to the door, you see your brother confronting an older man, uh, probably in his 60s. He's wearing a wide-brimmed hat with a white feather in it. He looks... Uh, he's very well kept and yet still looks disgusting. Maybe it's the way he carries himself. Maybe it's the sour expression on his face. Maybe it's the, the spittle that flicks from his mouth. But something about him is just very off-putting. Um, you recognize the family resemblance between him and Rolf. Um, and uh, as he says this to your brother, as you come in and you kind of see this in the doorway, they haven't noticed you yet. Your brother says, no, I am out. I am done. I am not going to do whatever it is you were trying to turn this into. And uh, when he says that, the older man says, No, 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 no. We can't have people not keeping their end of the bargain. For example, I like to do what I say. And I am telling you, you are going to continue this research. Or I am going to take over it myself. And your brother says, no, I am not going to. And before he finishes, this older man takes out a rapier from the side of his belt and in the blink of an eye stabs your brother through the center of his chest. Your brother makes a surprised sound as he stares at the rapier that's now in his chest. And in that moment, while you're, you're seeing this, you hear this old man say, Gadrian Lamb always follows through with his words. What do you do? I rush in, like, try to distract him. What's going on? Oh my god, is my brother okay? Your brother slides um, off the rapier as Gadrian puts a foot to him and pushes him off. And uh, he hears you come in and turns around and goes, Oh, hello, Poppet. I didn't see you there. What lovely eyes you have. The first thing I do is, like, I'm looking for a weapon. I'm looking for something that I can use to to use as a weapon to get in between this person and my brother. But I have nothing that I can use, nothing that I know of. And so I just rush at him. And, and maybe he wasn't expecting this person 
very quickly, faster than you could believe possible for a man of his age, sidesteps and you go crashing into a table. But you do succeed in, in separating him from your brother who is uh, convulsing on the ground. And uh, as he sidesteps, he goes, no, 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 that's not very ladylike. You must be the younger sister, the note keeper. Tell me, little one, where are your brother's notes? Uh, at that point, I get really scared. I mean, he knows who I am. He knows me. He knows my brother. Who is this guy? And I kind of like back away and... Uh, try to run away from him you as you back away you feel a hand on your your calf and you look down and you see your brother staring at you and he looks desperately and he says run and that's the last word your brother ever says as life leaves him so i know that i have to you know get out get away from this guy you know my brother told me to run but i also know that they were talking about my brother's research and the notes and somehow they seemed really important to this guy. And so I don't want him to get the notes and the data. So I, there's a hatch that I know that's behind the bookshelf because that's where I used to play as a kid. And so I try to get for that, get to that hatch so I can flee out that way. He, uh, he starts to approach you uncaringly as if he's, he feels like he's in full control of the situation. And he goes, oh, where are you going? You didn't answer my question, Bobbit. Uh, and the whole time I'm just backing up. You know, like, who are you? What do you want? Why are you here? I am Gadrian Lamb. And I want those notes. No. And Never. And as I say this, I'm like backing up, you know, uh, scooting back on my hands and my knees. And I'm trying to like crawl, crab crawl, as it were, mm -hmm. OF away from him, going under the table and get to that bookshelf that's in the back of the room. You you get to the bookshelf, um, like you crawl under the table and with his rapier, he like smashes a bunch of glassware on it and says, come here, puppet. And uh, you get to the bookshelf and you open the door um, and it's, it's, it's a very narrow opening. It's something that you're used to. You're, you're, you know, you're a fairly uh, narrow frame and um, it's not the kind of opening that just anyone can get into. No, it's just a little crawl space. It was like my secret compartment that I had as a kid growing up. It's where I used to go and play as like a six year old and everything. And so I just kind of like, rush for that space and dive in there and i know that it's so cramped that other people wouldn't be able to fit and uh you do get in there but as you get in there there's an explosion of pain as the tip of his rapier pierces your ankle and pierces it um almost to the point of going through the other end and he says come here and he twists the rapier as he pulls it out um severely damaging your ankle uh, yeah um but i know i have to get away so no matter what i do i'm still just crawling and and getting as far away from this guy as i can and this is also the same room where i 
kept my brother's notes where I kept the original copies of everything. And as soon as I pull myself away from him and his sword, um, you know, I slam the door to try and escape. You hear, as you slam the door from the other end, I always keep my word. I will have those notes. And you hear, like, banging on the door as he's trying to break through. So, with a, a, a very damaged ankle bleeding across the ground, you leave your brother, who has been pretty much your whole life, uh, dead on the floor of his own laboratory. Um, what do you do as you flee from this uh, building? I grabbed his notes, especially the most recent ones, uh, the ones that I thought were the most important, grabbed his books and just flee from the city. Uh, I have nowhere else to go. Uh, people, nobody else in the city. So uh, I escape and I go into the, uh, to the forest, the wooded area, as far away from the city and as far away from this guy as I could possibly get. So you leave Corvosa and um, you spend five years out there um, doing things, making connections and uh, fleeing. Fleeing from the dangers, the violence, the uh, the corruption that I see in the city. But as the campaign starts, we see Arlen, for whatever reason, coming back to the city, a bit older, um, a bit uh, you know, a bit wiser, perhaps, maybe, um, but uh, certainly. Um, back to the city with a purpose. Is it safe to say that you're probably spending the nights, the first few nights that you're here in the city, uh, back in your brother's laboratory? Yeah, that, like I said, that secret space, nobody knew about it. And that was the only place that I felt safe, you know, um, so, I could hide there. So you've learned that in the past five years, your brother's laboratory has all but been forgotten and left, um, the way it is. And, um, just the first few nights you're back in town, uh, for whatever reasons, whatever motivations that are your own, uh, you wake up one morning, and in your clothing, in your crawl space, there is a very interesting horror card with a note on the back of it. Okay. All right. Next, we've got uh, Elore. Hello, Elore. Hello. Hello, Elore. Shut up, You've, uh, you're in one of my other campaigns, so uh, this is not your first rodeo. No, it is not. Tell me a little bit about your character. Who are you? All right. So my character is a half-elf named Amelia Holden. Um, her mother is a human, uh, very poor, <laughs> very, very poor, Um who had a uh, one-night stand that ended in a uh, slightly disastrous um, way, or at least not in the way she was expecting, and she ended up with twins, uh, which are Amelia and Annika. Well, it's actually uh, quite common in Corvosa for uh, uh, women, young human women, seeking adventure and a little romance, uh, find their way over to the local elven tribe and, uh, 
that's actually how many of the half-elves in uh, Quivosa are sired. Yeah, well, when you're going out there, you don't think you're going to be one of those girls. You're thinking... No, of course not. (laughs) I'm going to be the special one. So, um, so she had, uh, a girl? She had, uh, two girls, uh, Amelia and Annika, who are twins. They are essentially mirrored twins, both with, uh, heterochromia and the opposite eyes. Um. I see. So they're different colors. What colors are their eyes? Um, their eyes are, uh, gray and hazel on the uh, opposite side. So if they're facing each other, it looks like they're essentially mirrors of each other. I see, I see. And so they're not mixed colors. It's like one eye is like a perfect hazel and one's like a perfect gray. Yes. Neat. Um, All right. Um, So what class is your character? She is a sorceress. Ooh. The uh, the uh, inert or the uh, the innate uh, magic users yes. they find power from within. Um, very very interesting, very fun characters to play. Uh, so tell me a little bit about your history. How's your family life? Oh. How was your growing up? Oh boy. Um, so family life was interesting, and by interesting, I mean hella stressful. Um, uh, her mother was very young when she had them, like barely 18. And as an unwed young woman who now had two children to take care of, um, the unwed bit was very unlikely to change. And so she essentially had to work constantly to try and keep them fed, keep a roof over their heads. She had to take out loans from very unpleasant people. Um, And as Amelia and Annika grew up, it was... They were pretty much left to their own devices because their mother was constantly off taking, you know, having to work. And so they really essentially had each other and that was about it. They were kind of, well, Annika got along well enough with all the other kids. She actually got along very well with them. But Amelia was very much not the social butterfly that her sister was. She was very anxious. She had very little in way of communication skills with people other than her sister. And even with her mother, she struggled very much to express herself. And so she kind of just dragged along on the coats of her sister um, (laughs) through most of their life. Um, it was, and, uh, what were her feelings about her sister? Oh my God. She loved her. She loved her sister with every ounce of her being. She was essentially a saint in her eyes. There could be no wrong that she could do. And it pretty much in her eyes, she was the purest ray of sunshine. I see. 
So they spent a lot of time together, I take it. Yes. Um, they were pretty much inseparable until about their teen years. Um, that's when they started to actually have to help with finances. They had to go out and get jobs either as like housekeepers or like just like helping out with like odd jobs or running errands for people. Um, and it was no real difficult task for them to find jobs. They're both very beautiful. And Annika was incredibly persuasive. She was someone who you felt like you could trust. And so she could usually help um, Amelia get a job along with her. You know, it's two for the price of one, that kind of thing. And so um, that was essentially how most of uh, Amelia's jobs came about was through her sister. Um, and that helped a lot with finances because for a very long time, her, their mother was very, it was, it was very difficult for her to be, you know, the, the loving generous, wonderful mother that, you know, you're supposed to have, or at least most people imagine people as being. It was, the financial strain was very stressful for her, and she tended to kind of hold it against them, but not actively, you know, punish them for it. Right. So, all that changed, though, right? Your sister, uh... Well, there's a big change. Yes. Um, things changed rather drastically as they grew up. Um, Annika and Amelia both became more and more independent of her. And eventually, um, Annika uh, was proposed to. Correct. By a... Uh... A gentleman uh -huh. by the name of Roth Lamb. This is correct. The uh, courtship was uh, pretty quick. You, you and your sister, especially you, uh, you and your sister, were always both quite good lookers. Your sister uh, always probably, you know, the prettier one in the sense she would actively try <laughs> to look pretty, uh, whereas uh, poor Amelia, socially awkward Amelia. She'd rather um, just hide herself in a corner, thank you. She yeah. caught the eye of an up-and-coming um, magician at the Academy, Rolf Lamb. Uh, he was making a name for himself, and uh, uh, they uh, very quickly courted and got married. Um, and Rolf's impression of you and more importantly his father's well Walt's impression of you was uh you were kind of a nuisance he made it pretty clear that you were expected to stay out of the way um his father on the other hand a man named gadrian lamb probably didn't strike you as the nicest guy he has this vibe about him that's just creepy um he knew saw at some point that you had sorcerer abilities and uh, he looked at you with uh, interest and uh, uh, sweet-talked you 
with uh, being part of the family now. And uh, now that, you know, your sister is his daughter and and uh, family helps each other out. And uh, maybe you'll uh, run some errands for him, help him with his business. Not too clear on what his business was, but, you know, it was uh, simple stuff at first that I believe your sister actually helped convince you to do. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly just, like, running packages here and there, important things that would quote-unquote, help the family business and such. And it was also a way for her to have a somewhat steady side job without having to go out and, and actively seek it, which was something that she hated. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, about how many years before the campaign starts are we? Um, this would probably be two or three years before it. Okay. Two or three years. Rolf uh, and uh, your sister have been married for maybe six months. Hasn't been a very long marriage. Um, but uh, your sister, who seemed to be all for it, starts to show signs of uh, telling you... Um, She's not happy that maybe she made a mistake. Um, I'm going to slip into character here. Mm-hmm. It's going to be... Uh, I'm going to set the scene for you real quick. Uh, where do you, uh, your sister and Rolf usually stay? Is there like a house that they uh, live in? And Rolf is not incredibly wealthy, but he is... Uh, 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 respected mage so Mm -hmm. uh they have a house in like not the best part of town but it's definitely much better than the area that annika and amelia grew up in it's kind of um like a a reasonable two-story house that they have it's not like a big mansion or anything but it's nice and it's sturdy and it actually keeps the wind out well, you arrive at that house um, to visit your sister, something that you have been able to do less and less, which is greatly distressing to you. Um, I imagine there's some feelings of uh, losing your twin. And um, on this evening, things don't feel quite right. Your innate abilities, your sensitivities um, tell you something's wrong. The lights are out in the house and they shouldn't be. Uh, you go inside, and uh, you uh, go into the common room, and it's really dark in there. And uh, you probably call out for your sister, and you hear a noise. You hear a... And uh, do you have like a, any sort of light spell or anything like that? Uh, a cantrip or I think the only thing that I have is um like a arcane mark which is supposed to be visible and glowing but I don't think I would it's really fine. use that you can uh you know you've been here enough you can find a lamp mm-hmm. um or a fireplace or get some light in the room and when you do when you uh say turn the uh 
Uh, well, they'd actually have several sunrods in the room, which sunrods are magical items that are pretty common in this world that, that are exactly what they say. They are rods that give light, and you'd uh, activate one. and You see, standing in the corner, a horrible sight. A being with dusty blonde hair, one hazel eye and one gray eye, and clothes that were your sisters, but this being is decayed. Unholy, undead, and it just stands there staring at you, going, What do you do? Amelia stands there, <laughs> lamp or the, the rod just trembling in her hands. And in a voice barely above a whisper says, please, please, no. You hear from behind you, hello, puppet. Amelia whips around. Gadrian Lamb is coming up behind you with his wide-brimmed hat and a white feather in it that he always wears. Unfortunate business, this. Roth always did like to dabble in necromancy. Some experiment, I guess, he got tired of her. Not the first time. Tears streaming down her face, she looks at him and just repeats over and over again, please, please don't, just give her back. No, please. Oh, chin up, Poppy. It's not all bad. Your sister wasn't exactly a saint, you know. All the things she did for me. Useful. But my son was never one to be controlled. Oh, I guess I'll have to clean this up. And he takes out a rapier, casually, calmly, and sticks it into the throat of your sister's form. And swipes it to the left, tearing out the neck so that your sister's head lulls at an unnatural anger, angle and crumples to the floor. And he just goes, Oh, well, best forget her, puppet. Um, am I allowed to cast spells at this point? Are you what? Am I allowed to cast spells at this point? Oh, absolutely. Um, because she would absolutely, uh, cast, uh, acid spray at him. Or acid splash. You cast Acid Splash at him, and uh, it hits him in the in the back of the neck, because he has his back to you, mm -hmm. and uh, it starts to sizzle the skin on the back and the side of his neck, and just a little bit on his cheek, and he howls in pain and goes, bitch, and he, uh, quicker than you've ever seen him move, especially for a man his age, crosses over to you and just backhands you painfully 
to where you fall to the floor stunned. And he says, I tried to give you some advice, Bobbit. I tried to be kind to you, Bobbit. But if this is how you repay me, you can burn that bitch of a sister. And with that, he uh, takes a, a lamp that he's been holding in his offhand and throws it on a, a, a drape that starts to catch fire. And uh, he takes his rapier and uh, jams it into your leg and into the ground uh, and just leaves it there and walks out without another word. What do you do? Amelia eventually collects her wits and scrambles over to her sister's body, gathering her up in her arms and shaking with rage and sadness and almost disgust. She she drags her out of the house. The fire is starting to catch all over. Your leg is throbbing from where you had to, uh, with some effort, pull out the rapier. Your sister still moves quietly and makes a gurgling noise as her vocal cords have been torn. You can see that even in undeath, her soul is fading. She, with every ounce of strength in her being, tries to drag her from the house as it burns around them. You manage, through uh, rage and desperation and tears, to get her outside to where you're on the front lawn of the house as the fire starts to consume it. Uh, Well, you're the back, actually. You'd be towards the back of the house. You can hear people on the other side starting to uh, be alerted by the fire. You can tell that your sister maybe has seconds left, and there's nothing you can do. Tears are practically blinding her now as she just holds her sister to her as gently as she can and just sobs and (laughs) begs her pointlessly don't leave me, don't leave me. You can't, you can't leave me like this. You said you wouldn't. You said we, we, we can't be apart like this. What happens next? Is it conscious? Are you aware of it? Or is it instinct? 
it is an active choice. A choice of desperation? Mm-hmm. Do you want to describe what happens, or...? Reaching for something deep within herself and also within her sister, Amelia holding her sister's quickly fading body to her takes the soul and draws it into herself. What you draw into you seems precious and tiny and fragile, as if it's a last trace of what it should have been. You can feel it enter into you. You can feel a comfort of your sister's presence, but also a coldness, a cold touch of death as it settles into your very bones. And from that night on, you are forever changed. So, for the next year, you find very quickly that the Lamb family has cut all ties with yours. All publicly, privately, you are act, they act as if they've never met you before, know nothing about you. You lose track of Rolf, you lose track of Gadrian. And I assume you hunt for them. Relentlessly. It, every moment that she is not spending <laughs> scrounging money together through odd jobs where she can find them, she is doing everything in her power to hunt them down, which <laughs> does very little to ease her mother's Grieving. Where do you stay? Do you stay with your mom? Yes, they stay in a very small... It's barely even a house, essentially. It's... So in old Corvosa, the poorer side of town? Essentially, yes. You find as the year progresses that uh, this cold touch of death, as you begin to grow used to it, it begins to slowly grow. You find that uh, patches of your skin start to discolor, slowly but surely. Uh, as I believe you told me in the past, you cover it up. Yes, um, she takes some. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. she she takes some of the um, the makeup and the paints that she and her sister um, used um, when they were younger to play, and will essentially paint just markings and decorations over the discoloration. 
So, one morning, you wake up and begin the same ritual of covering your markings with makeup. And you notice on the table sits a horror card. Now you're familiar with these. They're used to tell fortunes. And on the back of this card is a very interesting note. Okay. And we have our uh, fourth player. Blue. Hi, Blue. Fourth and final. Hello. Yes. Um, So, let's get straight into it. Tell me about your character. She's a little different, ain't she? She is a little bit different because God is is very generous in this realm and lets me play with things. Yes, Um, I am. (laughs) A little shameless flattery. Um, So, uh, she is of the Kadal people. Um, They are Mm -hmm. large humanoids. Um, They are very owl-like. Um, and they, uh, are not from Corvosa at all, so she did not grow up here. They are from the Morangi Expanse. And, uh, for all of those who are familiar with Pathfinder, you'll be like, the who now? Yeah, the Kadal is actually a race that, uh, is homebrewed for this campaign. Um, Blue wanted to try something a little new, a little exotic, and as a good GM, I am more than willing to allow it. So, uh, the Kadal are a race that we are adding in to, um, the world. Um, they are common enough that, uh, no one's surprised to see them, but they're still a very, very huge minority. And, uh, you'll learn about them as the campaign progresses. But, uh, so tell us a little bit about uh, about your character. So she is uh, an owl-like creature. Um, uh, very smart, very dexterous. Not the strongest type of, uh, uh, as far as like constitution-wise. Um, what class are you? I am a cleric. Um, just kind of your classic uh, healer. They are. They are. Um, actually fairly religious folk and they they place a lot of um of faith into the gods that they choose to follow Mm, it's true and uh their names because they're from you know the morongi expanse they know the deities by different names and they have their own saints and um so while um they still worship the same pantheon everyone else does usually they do it by different names um which is an interesting thing um, and you're not quite a just normal cleric. You do have some changes, which are be interesting to explore. Um, tell me about uh, uh so your your character's name is uh, Mweri. Yes. Tell me about Mweri. Um, so the the people that she come from again, they are they are largely loners, um, but they do form pairs and mate for life. Um, so she knew her parents had a good relationship with them, um, but just kind of eventually parted ways as they kind of do. Um, she lived on her own for quite a long time and, um, followed the path of, of a saint of nature and, and, um, though her, her person, her deity, her, the one she personally chooses to follow is different. Um, began to kind of adopt 
some of his teachings um, as a very uh, merciful person, as a very gentle person. Um, kind of adopted that as her her modus operandi. Um, she eventually, um, just kind of in her in her just moving around in the world, um, meets another Kadal named Kervin. Um, and they eventually form a pair and they eventually have two kids. Um, the youngest, uh, is their daughter, Liel, and the son is Mallow. Um, he's a little bit older. He's probably the equivalent of like, um, at the point where Liel is born, he's probably the equivalent of about eight years old in, in human years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, the lifespans are slightly longer than humans. Uh, what about, uh, from adolescence to adult? Is it about the same? Is it a little bit longer than 18 years or? Um, they consider adulthood to be like 25 and above. Okay. So still very young. Um, so your family, very tight knit, your, your husband, uh, Kervin, kindred spirit, kind, considerate. Um, yes. Uh, yes. And also with a protective streak about six miles wide. Um, loves his family fiercely. Um, again, extremely protective. Is a little bit more battle-oriented than Weary uh, is. Um, more willing to, uh, to step in the thick of things. Yes. Uh, less magically inclined. Hmm. So you guys travel from the Morongi Expanse. Um, <laughs> not not for our own volition, um, but mm. yes. And uh, you start learning the wide world around you. Where you're not the first, obviously. Others of your kind have gone before you, but mm-hmm. uh, you uh, you encounter quite a bit of bigotry and racism uh, from many of the places you travel, don't you? Yes. Um, w- well, they are they are bipeds and they are sort of vaguely humanoid shaped. They're very much not human, um, and they don't a lot of their their rituals, their you know their their habits, even their mannerisms are very much alien to the world around them. They're not a wide enough spread that this would be well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh something horrible happened, didn't it? Yeah. Um they settled in a couple they they attempted to settle in a couple of different towns and um met varying degrees of resistance to this. Um and each town they went farther and farther from their original home, eventually just traveling essentially great lengths to escape um, just kind of the, the bigotry that follows them. Um, and in one of the, in one of the towns, things go from unfriendly to violent. Um, and in this fight, um, Kervin is injured and, uh, essentially crippled. He is, um, uh, he, 
tears the ligaments in one of his legs. Um, and unfortunately, the youngest, their daughter, Liel, is uh, pretty brutally murdered um, by the guards of the city who want them gone. It is, it's essentially a hate crime. Um, mm-hmm. So with, with son and injured husband in tow, they, they don't have time to collect the body of their daughter. They have no time to mourn. They have to get out before they too are killed. And uh, you eventually do make your way to Corvosa, uh, where you find, relatively speaking, some acceptance. The people of Corvosa, uh, being mostly Chiliacs in origin, uh, do have bigotry and hatred, but it seems to be more directed towards the natives of that region, the nomadic barbarians. Um, and um, because of this directed bigotry towards others they uh, um seem to be a little bit more accepting of you still not perfectly of course i'm sure that your character sir uh, uh suffers jeers and and uh, bigoted remarks and things like that but compared to what you've been through um it must have been a relief yeah and and she by no means enjoys the fact that others suffer the fate that she too has experienced but I mean this this kind of hatred took her daughter from her and she's not about to she doesn't see it as a gift but it's a reprieve that she's not taking for granted mm-hmm. so you guys settle down what do you do what do you and uh, Curvin do um they're, they're still mourning um they're still mourning in the family um, they never got to give their daughter her final rights, and they never really got to see her off into the world. And there's there's a hole in their family that they start to fill by taking in the many kids off the streets. And eventually, um, they they find work, and Weary um, is a is a good cook, and um, Curvin is an excellent guardsman, um, and even Mallow can run small errands. Um, but they together form an orphanage. Hmm. Uh, an official orphanage or a kind of a below-the-books orphanage? Uh, more below-the-books. They're not really 100% sure about the laws of Corvosa. They, uh, Nobody ever really sat you know, them down. Not and sure how well it would be accepted. Ran to have, them down uh, the list. So you know, Cadal uh, in charge of an orphanage. They but, they uh, operate it fairly publicly, but it's not mm-hmm. necessarily um, by the books. You don't have the priest of Abadar come by and inspect it no. like the bigger orphanages do. No. Um. But um. But this does develop. Uh, even more so a uh, motherly streak in your character, doesn't it? Let's develop it and more bring out what was already there into, like, full force. Hmm. Uh, So as your character kind of rises to the substantial challenge of being a mother for... How many orphans would you say lived in your home? Um, Probably between 20 and 30, um, simply because they are... 
they, they are only two people and can only parent so many people at once. Right, and 20 is the same number. Um, so this goes on. Um, and then how many years before the campaign starts does your husband start uh, noticing worrying things? They had been in Corvosa probably about five or six years, um, and then about and this is about a year and a half, maybe a year before the campaign starts. He really starts to take notice of what's going on. So, orphans are winding up missing um, uh, from your orphanage too, or just yes. from the streets, or from your orphanage too. Kids uh, disappear. And, um, your, your curvin, as you said, uh, with a protective streak a mile wide, uh, begins to hear rumors, uh, that he confides in you, of course, uh, that there's a man called Gadrian Lamb, uh, mid-sized underworld kind of figure, not a big leaguer, but big enough that he, uh, has a, a racket that, um, the rumors are that he steals orphans, steals kids off the street, and puts them to work for him. Um, your husband, probably despite your uh, your advice, uh, plans to get his kids back, and uh, tells you in no uncertain terms that he's going to, uh, one way or another, get the orphans away from that man and get them back where they belong. Uh... Two days later, in the evening, we're going to go ahead and kind of slip into a role play here. Um, you're, it's evening time, dinner, you've been making dinner, probably just finished it, getting ready to, uh, have everyone come down and, uh, eat. Um, uh, Curvin is, uh, there with you, but he seems very distracted, uh, in his hunt for the missing orphans. And, um, all of a sudden, the doors to your house burst open, and, uh, men rush in. One in particular that you note, uh, above the others, a half-orc, uh, kind of leads them, starts directing people over. Obviously, the kids get really scared, uh, as these people are all carrying weapons. And, uh, the men start grabbing up children. Your husband, Curvin, obviously does not stand for this. And, uh, he attacks this half-orc, trying to defend the kids. Um, and, uh, he actually hits him really hardly, uh, really hard. Uh, strikes him in the face, leaves a scar on it. The half-orc gets crashed back against the wall. And, uh, it knocks over one of your lanterns. And, uh, the, the, your home, fairly large, you had to be for the orphans, but you kind of sacrificed quality for quantity. And that, the uh, the old timbers catch a light easily. And, um, before your husband can deal the final blow, you see from where you are the tip of a rapier burst through his side. Your husband lets out a gurgled cry and falls to the floor, unmoving. 
And behind him, you see, wiping uh, or pulling his rapier out, is a man in his older years, maybe in his 60s, with a wide brim hat and a white feather in it. And um, the fire spreads insanely fast, covering the entire room. You, uh, what do you do? Um, well, seeing her husband fall, she lets out a cry, and it, it echoes through the room, and it echoes through the street, and it's, it's a cry of, of knowing that the one you love has fallen. And as you cry, as you unleash that horrible sound, the timbers above you in the roof give out and come crashing down on you. You choke on the dust and heat, but you are relatively unharmed, rather miraculously, or perhaps by favor from your god or goddess. Um, the fire has now spread through most of the building, and the children have either all fled, including your son, or have been toted away. You hear the man in the white room hat say, Giggles, get out of here before you die in the flames. And the half-orc, kind of ashamed, gets up and walks out. And uh, he's looking around, and then he sees you, struggling. He looks... Kind of goes over to you, wiping casually blood off his rapier and goes, Hello, Poppet. I didn't know you were still alive. Tough old bird. Seems like I'm always cleaning up problems these days. And then he kind of like kneel or like squats down in front of you. Sorry about the mess, but your husband was poking into things that he shouldn't have. And, well, I can't have that. Who are you? Me? I, he stands up and gives a bow. Am Gadrian Lamb. And you must be the wife. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Widow of that fool over there. And he bends down over you. And that he says, pointing up, is the support beam of the building burning through. In a few minutes, I assume it's going to fall and crush you. So, I guess I should bid you adieu, widow of a fool, he says, as he backs out and begins to leave the burning building. What do you do? Um, there's, there's kind of a, a buzzing noise that starts, and it grows into a hum, and then it starts to become so loud that it starts to shake the floorboards. Um, it's, it's really quite deafening, and it mm -hmm. fills up the street with noise. And in that moment, she prays to her god that this man dies by her hand. You feel a burst of strength, uh, uh, 
and perhaps an answer to your prayer. A desperate cry to a faithful servant of a goddess. And as you are surrounded by your pets, drawing strength from your connection to them, you are able to push yourself out of the burning timber seconds before the beam crashes down. You drag yourself out of your home, coughing, trying to get the smoke out of your lungs. There's a crowd in the streets as people gather, but in that crowd, nowhere can you find the half-orc named Giggles or the man named Gadrian Lamb. What happens over the next year or so? Um... She essentially makes that place into a shrine. And it's it's um the resting place of of her husband and it's the place where she invoked her revenge. Where's your son? Um she can't find him. And she has searched the city over and over, and she can't find him at all. How old is he now? Um, human equivalent of maybe twelve, thirteen. I see. Well, over the course of the next year, trying to follow your vow to your gods. Uh, goddess, correct? You uh, you follow a goddess? Yes. Okay. Uh, trying to follow, fulfill your vow to her. You search everywhere. Where do you spend your nights when you're not hunting? Uh, she goes. She goes back to the orphanage. She stays there. Alone. Yes. That must be horrible. She doesn't have anywhere else to go. I see. One morning, Weary wakes up, and uh, in the kitchen, where she used to cook meals for all the orphans, there on the stove is a horror card with a very interesting message on it. Well, there you have it, everyone. Um, that is our first episode of the Curse of the Crimson Throne campaign. I know it was a lot of setup. Uh, but hopefully, when we actually start the adventure in the next episode next week, uh, you'll have a much deeper connection with the story right from the get-go. Uh, and things will matter a bit more to you. And uh, things are going to move pretty quickly. So it's it's good to know that in advance. Uh, if you liked this, uh, and I really hope you did, please feel free to leave comments uh, here or leave us reviews on iTunes or however you're finding this. Uh, it really helps us know that... Um, we're on the right track here. And um, if you do like it, then by all means, tune in next week uh, and you'll get another episode. We hope to do this once a week, about an hour and a half per week is what we're planning on. And uh, we plan on going the long haul, doing the whole adventure. It should be fun. So I hope you're there to join us. I hope you're there along the way. And um, until next time, folks, may the dice ever be in your favor. <laughs>